Amen. Our scripture again is taken from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, and we'll look at verse 12. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 12. And it reads as follows. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Amen. The seeing, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Now, as most of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know that Proverbs stands out not only because it's called the wisdom book of the Bible, but it stands out even in terms of how it's, how it's, it's put together. Proverbs doesn't follow a particular narrative, but rather it is what one would call an anthology. We're told in chapter 1 that uh, Solomon, for the most part, is the one who put this anthology together. Uh, and by anthology, it's a collection of other works. So really, Proverbs is a collection of what we would call pithy sayings, wise sayings. But these aren't to be confused with the Proverbs of, of, of other teachers. These Proverbs, these wisdom sayings, are grounded in the knowledge of God and of salvation. Now, Solomon himself is, is credited with over 3,000 Proverbs. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 4, verse 32, we are told that among his other possessions, that Solomon had 3,000, over 3,000 proverbs. So no doubt, we know that many of these proverbs that are contained in the book itself, whether they came directly from Solomon or whether he gathered wisdom literature from other sources and other sages, such as chapter 30 and 31, which are ascribed to other writers, but Solomon put them together. Now, the primary purpose of his putting this anthology together, and we look at this from a human standpoint, the reason he put these proverbs together was twofold. One, to, uh, to instruct his sons, uh, it was to instruct his sons and to prepare them, one, to govern and rule God's people as men of God. I remember Solomon, one of the things that stands out in his uh, kingship in his reign, one of the first things that he asked of the Lord was for wisdom and how to go in and out among the people of God. And the Lord granted him that wisdom. So what Solomon does is he offers this, this, this book, this anthology of wise sayings, sayings from sages to equip his sons, whichever the ones that would govern, so that they would, would learn how to govern God's people as men of God and not like the other kings and other rulers in the earth. But another important reason for Solomon giving these instructions to his son was not just so they could govern God's people, but rather so that they would know how to live in general as men of God. So Solomon writes or gives these instructions. Oftentimes, he breaks into the text and he'll say, my son. And he gives them instructions and it exhorts them and encourages them to listen to words of wisdom. A, so they could govern and rule God's people as men of God. 
But even if they didn't rule because all of the Solomon's sons did not govern, but more importantly, rather than the office, but rather how, uh, so that they would know how to live as men of God. Now, since the bulk of the book is really presented as a contrast between the wise and the foolish, the wise and the foolish, it would be helpful to understand how these terms are used throughout the book. In other words, what does he mean by foolishness or the fool, and what does he mean by wise men or wisdom in general? So I would argue this way. First off, the term fool or foolishness refers broadly, as as Solomon uses it, it refers broadly to the inclinations, the affections, and the, the appetites, and the actions of fallen humanity. So foolishness is the cumulative, or we would call it the depravity of our thoughts and affections, but it is, foolishness is the inclination or the inclinations, because we are inclined away from God, the affections, the appetites, and the actions of fallen humanity. In chapter 16, verse 2, it it, it sums it up this way. It says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. And that's foolishness. Uh, This sentiment is repeated in a number of other places, but more particularly in 1625 and then elsewhere. He says this, it's repeated that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ways or the end thereof leads to destruction. Chapter 14, verse 12, 1625, and it's repeated in other portions of the book. So here's what we mean by foolishness. It's the inclinations, the affections, the appetites, and the actions of fallen humanity. Put another way, and combining the sentiment of the book of Ecclesiastes, really foolishness is the result of our being disconnected vertically from God. It's the result. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, that that everything under the sun is vanity. Because everything, and by under the sun, that means really if man is disconnected vertically from God, then even though he has a mind, he won't think right. He has appetites, they won't be for the right things. He will be therefore foolish in all of his ways because he's inclined away from the will and the desire of God. So foolishness, the fool is the one really who is disconnected from God and remains there in one way, even though we'll see in a moment that we foolishness remains in us and that is part of our growth in grace so the fool is the one who walks according to the inclinations and affections of their fallen nature on the other hand when when solomon or the book refers to wisdom 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 first off begins as solomon says it begins with fear or reverence for god So wisdom 
begins with fear or reverence for God. Now, to put it in broader biblical terms, wisdom itself is a gift of God in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, uh, Paul affirms this. So again, wisdom is itself a gift of God, and if we begin with our inclinations and our affections away from the things of God, then wisdom connects us vertically with God, and therefore it gives us new affections and new appetites. So wisdom is not man-made. Wisdom itself is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So therefore, wisdom, wisdom is God's gift to fallen humanity who otherwise sees himself as being right and being pure, but wisdom gives us new insight. Uh, it's also clear that even though wisdom is a gift of God's saving grace, and this is made clear throughout the book of, of, of Proverbs, even though it is a gift of God's saving grace, wisdom has to be intentionally and consciously pursued. It, it, it has to be intentional. It's not, we talked about this last week from James 1. When we talked about uh, when James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And wisdom, therefore, is the accumulation. It's, it's the combination, I should say, of right information and then right judgment. So that we would be advised in the proper course of action in any given situation. Now, that does not come natural to us. But since we are saved by grace, God gives us the indwelling spirit, and he therefore makes wisdom available to us. So wisdom is a gift from God, but it's a, it's a gift that has to be consciously and intentionally pursued. Now, actually, um, Pastor Singleton this morning gave us a good example of that. Because David is a man after God's own heart, but David is a sinner saved by grace. And when it came to Nabal, what David was looking to do was to not act in wisdom. And so Abigail serves really as a sort of as an illustration of what God does for his people. You don't have to go to the course of the, of, that you're headed in. Somebody can stop you. And what God does, notice what Abigail says to David, don't do this. She, she humbles herself and she takes the fault for her husband, but she says, don't act in vengeance. And then she makes this interesting observation. She says, you, being a man of God, only fight God's battles. In other words, the fight that you're about to engage in is not God's battle. That's you acting in the flesh. So David is now confronted with wisdom. And he can consciously embrace it or reject it. See, that's what we mean. Even though we are renewed by God's grace, even though wisdom is given to us in Christ, it doesn't just automatically flow out of us. Because all of us, 
even though we are fallen, and, or we are, even though I should say we are regenerate, and even though we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we don't always act in wisdom. And as in the case of David, he was about to act out of passion. In fact, there was another statement that I, I, I clung to as we were reading over that text this morning, where David makes this observation. He, when he is miffed because Nabal doesn't respond in the way that he thinks that he should, he says this, that I did all of this good in vain. Now that's not wisdom. You see, in other words, why does he offer the service that he offers, the protection that he offered to Nabal's shepherds and shearers? He did it because the second table of the law says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. He did it because he had the opportunity to do so. He doesn't have a contract. He doesn't have a, a written contract with Nabal to take care of his shepherds or his shearers, but he is under obligation to love his neighbor as himself. Therefore, he puts himself out and his men, he put them out for the purpose of protecting the neighbor. And then when the neighbor doesn't respond in the right way, then David is not looking to act in wisdom, but he's about to act in vengeance. And therefore, as this proverb says, there is a way that seems right to a man, even a regenerate man, but the paths therein leadeth to destruction. Brothers and sisters, wisdom doesn't just automatically happen. It has to be consciously pursued, which is the point that James is making when he says if anyone lacks wisdom in a season of storm, then let him ask of God and he will grant it to him. So therefore, wisdom has to be consciously, consciously pursued because foolishness, which is native to us, seeks the inclinations and the affections and the appetites of the fallen self. And here's the problem. We get a whole lot of endorsement and amen when we follow the flesh. And sometimes the things that give us the loudest praise for men or from men is not the course of wisdom. And so in this instance, what, what we see as we look at, at wisdom broadly, we understand that foolishness is native to us. Therefore, as we look at New Testament terms, when the Bible talks about the war of the flesh versus the spirit, we can, we can interchange those words this, that the battle of the flesh versus the spirit is also the battle of wisdom versus foolishness. Uh, chapter 18 verses 1 and 2 sums it up best concerning the inclinations of our fallen mind. Verses 1 and 2 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Then he makes this statement, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expresses his opinion. See, that's, that's the fool. That's, that's where we all are. We, we are always looking for someone to affirm us in our flesh. But wisdom breaks in against the flesh. 
see this also in or, or, or throughout uh, the, 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 uh, the Proverbs, we, we see that wisdom is something that even the godly, because hold in mind that Solomon is assuming in talking to his sons, he's talking to men who have already been reared in the law of God. But the law of God doesn't always seem the path that we should go. The fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but he only wants to express his own opinion, and I would argue he only wants to hear others who agree with his opinion. Whereas wisdom, on the other hand, leads us in the path of righteousness. In chapter 8, we see something interesting that the writer does, which is a little different from the rest of the book, because in chapter 8, the writer sort of personifies wisdom. He makes wisdom a person, and there are some great old sermons, and when I say old, I mean from the 18th and 19th century, that make these the words of Christ. In other words, put put Christ in in chapter 8 of Proverbs, And that is what Paul means when he says he is the wisdom of God for us. But in chapter 8, verses um, 32 through 36, in contrast to the fool, and, and and by the way, this isn't, he's not here just talking about the foolish person, the unbeliever versus the believer, but here he's challenging the believer to consciously walk in wisdom rather than follow the course of his own opinion or our own inclination. Chapter 8, verses 32 through 36, wisdom is speaking, speaking as, uh, as, a, as a woman or, uh, or as a person. And so beginning in verse 32, it says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. And do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting uh, beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. See, that's, that's wisdom speaking, and it's speaking to those who have been awakened by God's grace. And it's, it's really offering a plea, don't do it. Just like Abigail tells David, don't do it. It seems right to you. You have all of your men already ready to go, but I'm telling you, don't do it. Wisdom, therefore, speaks to those who have been renewed by God's grace so that they are, not, they are not slaves to their own fallen affections. And that's really the point of the passage that we are looking at tonight. It's only a, a single statement. But what I want to do is just look at three things from chapter 20, verse 12. And there are three implications important implications as it relates to understanding wisdom and walking in wisdom. The first thing is this. Those that God regenerates by his grace, he reconstructs so that we can recognize our need for wisdom and so that we can have the ability to receive wisdom. And that's what's, what's indicated here. He says, the hearing ear. And the seeing eye, 
God has made them both. And he's not talking about the physical eye which we see with which we see, nor is he talking about the physical ear with which we hear. Rather, he is speaking of spiritual awakening. It's the same thing that Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, when he admonishes the Ephesian believers to not walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk, who walk according to the darkness of their minds. Because he says they don't have any understanding. But he says you're different. Because then he goes on to argue later, he says, but you've been taught by Christ. See, you have received him. And so you're no longer in the darkness that is native to you. You have an opportunity to walk in light. Therefore, the first thing we have to understand about wisdom is that wisdom is God's reconstruction gift to those that he gives the gift of saving grace. One of the things that we see throughout the book of Proverbs is that the, fool, the foolish person or the fool, if you want to look at the person as being absolute unbelievers, I don't know, we can do that in certain instances, but one of the characteristics of our, fool, our, our fallen foolish nature is we don't want to be corrected. That's the thing that, 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 that is, is re, it's, it's reiterated over and over again that sound words mean nothing to the person who's trapped in their own emotions and their own fallen state. But here's what, what, uh, what he says here in verse 12 of our text. Here's what God gives. Here's what God does for the soul that he regenerates by his spirit. He reconstructs. So that you have ears and that you have eyes in ways, in other words, that you can hear in ways that you could not hear before. And your view of life is different than it used to be before you were given the gift of saving grace. This is all of God. This is nothing that we've done. We haven't bargained for it. We haven't tarried for it. We haven't labored for it. But God does it. So everyone that is regenerate has the capacity to hear and to see according to the will of God. This is what Paul means in Philippians that he says it is, that it is God who is at work in you. Causing you to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is what is meant in, in, in the part of the formula of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. At the end of every letter, whether it's a word of rebuke or a word of comfort, the words of Jesus is let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. Therefore, again, I reiterate, those that God regenerates by his grace he reconstructs so that we can respond to wisdom. Things that you would have thought foolish in your unbelief, you're able to recognize as being sound and solid. That becomes the basis for better decisions. Decisions that may not make sense to the natural man, but decisions that reflect the very heart of God. Here's the second thing. 
Since God is the one who gives us and reconstructs us with the ability to hear and to see, then that raises the question, what does the hearing ear, recreated by grace, what does it do? Or what is meant by the, the hearing ear in this context? It's not the person who hears sounds. It's the person who hears truth and is able to respond to it. It is the, the ability to hear what is good, what is healthy, what is pleasing. It is the ability to recognize that which is sound from that which is unsound. We've been going back and forth in our Sunday school class and statements from Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14 but in verse 14, he, or in verse 11, he says that he's given this, this gift of the ministry of the word. And then in verse 12, for the purpose of equipping the saints for service. And then in verse 13, to bring us to maturity in the knowledge of Christ. And then in verse 14, so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, brothers and sisters, some errors are not errors when we're dark, when we're still in our sinful state. Some things, they just seem to make sense. That's part of Paul's reasoning in Colossians when he talks about the persuasive philosophy of the flesh and the tradition of men. He says they, they are persuasive arguments. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 2 by saying, these things have an appearance of wisdom. And so they seem to make sense to the fallen flesh. I remember a friend of mine who was Roman Catholic, and I was young and not as uh, discreet as I should have been, and I, I thank God for grace to grow. So when he was telling me about his Roman Catholicism, I ended up getting into a conversation about why Mary is not a mediator. And then he made this observation. I said, so why do you look to Mary when we have Jesus? And he says, um, do you have, is your mother still living? And at the time my mother was, he says, don't you think that, don't you love your mother? I says, yes, I love my mother. He says, don't you think that if, if, if your mother, if no one else has influence on you, your mother does? I said, well, that's, that's true. I will listen to my mother, but I, I was a preacher at the time. I said, but my mother is also fallen. There are times when she can be wrong. And see, he, then he answered back, but Mary was without sin. There was a consistency to his argument, but the problem is it was wrong. You see, brothers and sisters, when God gives us ears to hear, we're able to hear what we cannot naturally hear. And what we naturally hear, sometimes it makes sense at certain levels, but you'd be surprised at what we are willing to believe in our state of darkness. What God does is he gives us ears to hear what we cannot naturally hear. We are able to hear God's word as being God's word. We are able to hear him speak to us as his word is expounded and explained to us. 
And certainly when it comes to saving knowledge in Christ, we are able to hear him call us unto himself through words that others may hear, but they don't hear the same thing. Everyone that comes to saving knowledge in Christ comes because they heard the voice of God through his word. They heard him condemning them as sinners, and they hear him pardoning him themselves in grace. God is the one who gives us the ability to hear what we need to hear, what we need to hear for salvation, what we need to hear for, sal- for, for sanctification, what we need to hear in our times of comfort. We are able to hear what we would not ordinarily hear in our fallen state. Now, I return to the point. Just because we can hear doesn't mean we always want to listen. That's why in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about dealing with a brother who's overtaken in sin. He says, go to him, go to him one-on-one and confront his sin. Sometimes we can be very protective of our sins. We may literally sometimes put our fingers in our ears that we don't hear. He says, then if he doesn't hear you, because he did hear, he heard the words that you said, but he doesn't hear the words of, 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 of a holy God. So he says, if he refuses to hear you, then come back with two or three others. What is God doing in that first encounter? God is pulling you aside and saying, brother, you're out of line here. But if we refuse to hear that, then God speaks louder. And he doubles and triples the voices so that we can hear again that our words, our actions are contrary to what God's people ought to be. And then if we still refuse to hear, he says, take it to the church. I don't think that means air people's dirty laundries to the whole, uh, their dirty laundry to the whole congregation. I think what he's addressing here primarily is one-on-one Christian fellowship. In that final step when he says, take it to the church, take it to the officers of the church and let them address that issue. And if he still doesn't hear, then treat him like he wants to be treated. Treat him like an unbeliever. If he's hearing the word of God and refusing it as the word of God, then refuse him the fellowship of God's people. God regenerates us because we're fools. And he gives us access to wisdom. And the means by which he gives us access to wisdom is that he reconstructs us. And he gives us ears to hear. Sometimes what we don't want to hear, but what we need. Wisdom always provides what God's people need because wisdom is anchored in what is good, what is holy, what is just, and what is healthy. But here's the second thing. In fact, let me just, uh, another statement here in chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, because hearing is the ability to hear what is good and pleasing, Uh, uh, to God so therefore it includes instruction 
and it includes rebuke and correction. Chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. And and by the way, Proverbs is full of reminders to the son to pay attention to instruction. Don't write it off. In verses 17 and 18, he says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we have been reconstructed so that we can hear wisdom. And God pours wisdom into us through the ministry of his word and through the gracious and vital fellowship of others who love us as they love themselves so that they are willing to tell us and warn us and instruct us when our actions, when our words are contrary to what it ought to be. Well, that brings us to the third and Uh, And by the way, before we we turn to the third thing, there is a contrast to this. Here's our flesh again in chapter 9. In in chapter 9, verses 7 and 9. So if the wise person is instructed to listen to the words of wisdom, here's what the fool does. And here's what we are prone to if we are left to our own devices. In verses 7 through 9 It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wise. Teach a righteous man. And he will increase in his learning. So in other words, God has given us the capacity to hear. But when God's word comes to us, when a word of correction, a word of instruction comes to us, it is up to us to do the hearing. Third thing that we see is that our our reconstruction not only includes ears, but it it includes new eyes. Or a better description of it is is that it includes new insight, new ability to see what we don't ordinarily see. Staying in chapter 9, in chapter 9, verse verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Think about that. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, insight is the basis of it's it's it's, it's the basis of our our, our new worldview, our, our new understanding. It's the new light. Jesus says in in, in Matthew that uh, that that the eyes are the lamp of the soul. And he says, when the light that is in you is dark, then how great is that darkness? And so what God does is he gives us new eyes, new eyes, new eyes so that we are able to see ourselves differently. New eyes. That's what David saw when Abigail confronted him. He saw Nabal first as an enemy and he was acting out of his own vengeance. 
when he was confronted with wisdom, he saw a more excellent way. And he saw himself because of the words of wisdom that were imparted to him. He now saw himself not on a personal crusade to vindicate his own name, but he saw himself as a servant of God whose it was his responsibility to therefore represent the integrity of God. The new eyes that are given to us by the gospel, this reconstruction causes us to see ourselves as being more than our net worth, more than our accumulation, more than our education, more than our position. Because new eyes allow us to see ourselves as the children of God. I have a number of young men that we work with and uh, each week, and, and one of my lessons this past week was with a brother as we were working through Jesus or the recording of the Lord's Prayer in, uh, Luke, uh, in, in Luke's Gospel. It's slightly different from the one that's given at, at the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the things that was pointed out, because we talked about the intimacy that's, that's connected in both, uh, in both versions of the prayer. Jesus begins, our Father. And he, he brought something to my attention that I hadn't thought about. Moses prays to God, who is the creator of all things. He, he, he refers to God as holy and wise and all of the saints in the Old Testament, they pray to God as creator and sustainer and savior. But none of them pray our father. And I, when he brought that to my attention, I said, you know what? They, they, even though in redemption God always calls uh, the, the children of Israel his son collectively. But in Christ, Christ has the unique intimate privilege of being the only begotten of the Father. And one of the things that he gives us by virtue of our faith in him is we get to be called the children of God, and we have the ability to call the creator of the universe our father. And it's not just father in the formal sense. The word that's translated there is Abba. It's, it's, a, it's an Aramic word, and, and, and it really means it's an endearing word for one's father. And, and, and I remember, I knew this, and I knew this, and I said, okay, yeah, I know, Abba, Father, and that's what it means. In fact, in certain places it says, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father. But then it wasn't until I was in an airport, traveling from Africa, and I forget where we were, somewhere in Europe, changing planes. I saw this older man sitting in, in, in the, at, the, at the gate, and on his lap was, I'm going to assume, probably his grandson. And the, the, the young child is sitting on this older man's lap, and the older man was, was carried away looking at something, and the, the young man, he was speaking another language. It was international. I don't know where they were coming from or where they were going. But the, the, the little boy was trying to get the older man's attention, and then he finally stroked his face, and he said, Abba. I said, there it is. What God has given us in Christ is a means by which we see ourselves 
as dear children belonging to a heavenly father. And he's given us this privilege that we can cry out, Abba, and get the father's attention. Brothers and sisters, God reconstructs us so that we can hear words of instruction. But words of instruction are intended for us to live as dear children. This is Paul's logic and language in Ephesians 5. He says, as dear children of God, therefore be imitators of Christ. And so what God does is he reconstructs us to hear what we don't naturally hear. And he reconstructs us to see ourselves and to see God and to see the world and to see others in a way that's different from our upbringing and from our fallen, corrupt nature. We are able to see God as Father and ourselves as children and and others as neighbors because that's what God has done. He is the one who has recreated us And has given us ears that can truly hear his word and instruction and rebuke and hear it in love. And it is he who has given us not just the eyes of faith so that we can see Jesus as our savior. But the illumination where on a clear day we can see ourselves as his children And we see the creator of the universe as a doting father who loves us. We are all prone to foolishness because that's native to us. But thank God for grace because that makes us able to receive and to respond in wisdom in a way that pleases God in all circumstances and in every situation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that in and of ourselves, we, like others, see ourselves as being pure, in our own eyes. But you have regenerated us. And you've given us the ability to hear what we need to hear so that we can see what we need to see. You've given us a heart that allows us to see ourselves as condemned so that we can receive your word of pardon. We pray now that we are saved, saved from your wrath and sealed by your spirit, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to hear what we need to hear and to see ourselves and others as we ought so that we could walk worthy of the vocation to which we've been called. 
Thank you for your grace that has regenerated us. Thank you for your grace that has reconstructed us. And we pray that we would use those ears and we would use new eyes to be what you've called us to be. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen.